Hello, hello, and welcome to today's podcast. Today, I had the privilege of interviewing and speaking with Emily Mackey from Speak About Speech Therapies. Emily is a speech pathologist, and she was lucky or privileged enough to win uh, the Australian Speech Pathologist of the Year in 21-22. Since graduating from the University of Sydney almost 15 years ago, Emily's mission has been to equip the next generation of Australian children. She's super passionate about seeing children's lives transformed as their communication and learning difficulties dissolve with the appropriate intervention. She has helped thousands of children in private practices, community health centres, hospitals, preschools and schools. However, Emily has always felt her hands had been tied, only being able to help a limited number of children at any given time. She was also frustrated by the national shortage of speech therapy services available to children. She has experienced the negative effects of this personally in her clinics and in the media, and the media is constantly reporting parents who are crying out for help with their children. In January 21, Emily decided no more children should be left behind without intervention options readily available and stepped into online mentoring, training and services. Emily founded the Successful Speechy Academy to serve speech pathologists, educators, care services and allied health professionals. The Successful Speechy Academy is Australia's first professional development academy for upskilling in preschool language therapy to help children diagnosed with language delays and disorders aged two to six years old. She has trained thousands of speech therapists globally over the past two years with her online program and in 2023 is launching a new professional development course for educators, care services and allied health professionals. Emily is current uh, Emily currently lives with her husband Michael and her daughters Evie and Isabel in Sydney. She loves tea, cooking and having her nose in a good book. So this conversation was awesome. Emily gave so generously uh, so many examples and ways that we can assist children. Not only that, but at the very end, when she was getting ready to tell you what her contact details were and where you could find her, you all know the internet woes I have. My internet just cut Zoom off. So we didn't get to get to the very pinnacle of the conversation, which I'll share with you now because I'm not clever enough to be able to stitch it all back together. Um, but basically what Emily is doing is she's offering $100 off to anybody who uses the code VICTORIA when you purchase one of her course packages. Um, and there's it's, it's really available to everybody. Um, you could be a service that purchases this and your educators have access to it or you may be an educator who's just really passionate about helping the children and you might want to purchase this course yourself. But either way, when you use the code VICTORIA, it's going to give you $100 off the course packages, which is awesome value. So uh, make sure you pop along to Emily's um, website or, or down into the show notes, but you can find Emily at emilymackey at speakaboutspeech.com. Um, and her uh, website is all the w's.emilymackey.com.au. Uh, Facebook is emilymackey.speechy and Instagram is the same, emilymackey.speechy. So obviously those will all be in the show notes for you, uh, but I highly recommend that you uh, take some notes in this podcast episode. Uh, it's jam-packed full of information just for you. And we are so thankful to Emily for sharing her time. And uh, yeah, let us know what you think of this podcast because I found it really interesting. Enjoy. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Big Hearted Podcast. My name is Victoria Edmund, and I am your host. Our aim here at the Big Hearted Podcast is to nurture a community of heart centered educators to change the perception and delivery of early childhood education and care in Australia and ultimately around the world. We want you to be inspired by our guests and the topics we bring to you to think of new ways of being as an educator. We want you to feel a sense of belonging via this podcast so that you can engage any time of the day or night in any place that suits you. 
We want you to become an educator that delivers education from the heart, as we believe this is how we create great change within our world. So join us as we discover new ways to inspire each other here on the Big Hearted Podcast. Hello, and we are live now and in the studio with the beautiful Miss Emily Mackey. And we've just heard your professional intro. So I'm really keen to hear from your heart why it is that you do what you do, Emily. Thank you, Victoria. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Um, So being a speech therapist, been a speech therapist for the last 15 years, I, what I really love is I love children. I'm so passionate about um, all ages, pretty much from babies all the way up to high school. I mean, they're not really babies then, are they? But I love children. I love, um, I love seeing progress and change with children. And I love seeing how their brains learn and how they can grow and how they can achieve. And that's always just been my underlying reason of why I do what I do like I'm just so passionate about helping children but also in that I just am so passionate about helping children with delays or disorders or disabilities and I really believe that like no children no child should be held back by their difficulties or delays and when I was growing up I had a lot of um, family I had a lot of young children around me and I had lots of family or friends that I saw that had difficulties so they had um, you know learning difficulties at at school they had problems reading writing or spelling I had um, people that I knew and their children weren't talking Um, and then I also had friends that had children that couldn't talk you know that had really severe disabilities physical disabilities and I just always um thought there must be more that could be done for these children and and um, I was lucky enough to go and attend a speech therapy session with one of my neighbor's children or um, one of my neighbor's child I should say and I actually sat down I saw the speech therapist work and I went into the session and this little boy he couldn't say the r sound so he was saying like wabbit instead of rabbit mm-hmm. and so he, he was walking into the therapy session with me going, oh, we might practice, you know, we might see some rabbits today. And by the end of the 30 minutes with the speech therapist, he came out and he was like, I, I can say rabbit. And for me, I was like, wow, that's amazing. Like you can, you couldn't speak clearly 30 minutes ago. And now I've seen such a change. And I just was like, this speech therapist is amazing. I want to do speech yeah. therapy. And um that sort of just has spurred a very um, a very long career, I guess, so far of what I'd love to do. I mean, you go to uni and you don't really know much about the theory and all that type of stuff. But um, I've just, I've loved seeing that change over and over and over again with every child that I've seen in the therapy sessions and therapy rooms. And um, that's sort of my heart for why I do what I do. I yeah. love seeing that change in progress. That's amazing. It's it's similar to what educators experience when they're working with children and there's a, a goal they may be working on with the children and we have a certain amount of skills, which is obviously in a different set to the ones you use, but we use uh, skills and it's so exciting when you see a child overcome a hurdle or a blockage that they've had and it can be so many different aspects in education so speech pathology is really just niching down into into that the way you present yourself and the way you speak and I'm very conscious that I'm putting on my no don't feel today. <laughs> <laughs> no I do I listen back and I think oh you sound like such a bogan because you click <laughs> words and and all that sort of stuff so it, it's it's real I understand that uh passion that you feel and that connection to I just made a difference in a person's life because how you express yourself paints a picture and 
sets up a, a the way that people will relate to you for the rest of your relationship with that person. And I think speech is such an important thing and educators really get a vast array of uh, speech that they have to work through with children. And, and this was why I really wanted to chat with you today because there are so many educators that will come across issues that children are facing but we don't have the skills to deal with it. And as you know, trying to get them somewhere where they can get help is becoming increasingly more difficult. So can you tell us a little bit about what it is that you do and why I was so excited to get you on? Yeah, <laughs> it's, um, it's um, from what you were saying, when I can understand that frustration when you, I guess as an educator, it takes a lot to talk to a parent if, if you identify that a child's got difficulties. And then, of course, you're going to feel frustrated if you work up that courage and you get the parent on board and you invest the, the work and the effort in to saying, okay, you need to go and access services. So whether that's speech therapy, OT, psychology, whatever. And then when they actually finally go and access the service, they come back to you and say, there's a waiting list. I can't, I can't have, I can't help my child. And so I can imagine how frustrating that is. I feel frustrated as a speech therapist because um, I have, I have two clinics, one in Sydney and one on the central coast, which we, um, so we help children and we help children. When I started the business, businesses I thought this is because there's children that can't access help I don't ever want to have a waiting list I want to be able to help children the parent identifies the educator encourages them to come in parents are really anxious they come in and they can get the help that they need for their child however at the moment we're just in the whole of Australia we're facing a very vicious cycle where that's not the case yeah. and so it's when we're talking about speech pathology or speech therapy they set the same thing um we help children so um i mean we help children we help people with communication right so a speech therapist can see a newborn baby which i've seen like their first day they're born the first day they need help with feeding and breastfeeding and um, moving their tongue and sucking that type of thing that's what we work with and then we can work across the lifespan and help people when they're you know 100 plus with swallowing and stroke and i've i've um, been privileged to work with all ages so my youngest patient that I've ever seen was a newborn baby and then my oldest patient I think was like 100 and something 102 oh, wow. and they were in hospital and I had to um, help them with their swallowing yeah. and so you know there's so much that speech therapists can do if you narrow it down to what we do with children we um, like in my clinic we work with children from 18 months to about 18 years of age so even that that's huge yeah uh we work with their um speech sound so their pronunciation like i was giving the example from wabbit to rabbit yeah. we work with if they're stuttering which can be a common um developmental um problem for children or a challenge for children yeah. uh we work with language so that's being able to understand what people are saying around you and then being able to express yourself so using the right words sentences grammar that's yeah. all language Language then also moves into older children if they're able to write a story yeah, or if they're able to read a story and understand that's all language as well. Yeah. And then um, we also work with feeding. So if, if children are picky eaters or fuss, they, the word is fussy, yeah. then sometimes if there's underlying issues there relating to their muscles or their motor movements or sometimes even sensory, we'll work with the occupational therapist to help them. Okay. Um, it's a bit of more of a specialised area. And then we do um, older level type skills, so literacy, like I mentioned before, reading, writing, spelling, comprehension. Yeah. And, I mean, those, those issues can sometimes be present by themselves. So yeah. a child may have no, uh, nothing else going on. They might have just developed a stutter. Yeah. Or we deal with a very complex case where a child will come in and they might have autism and they've been and they're non-verbal they've got feeding issues they've um, got sensory issues it's sort of like the whole the whole kits everything's happening so we deal across the range with so many different issues yeah well we we get them all <laughs> yes <laughs> being educators we're frequently the first one to raise with families that oh there could be a little red flag here 
particularly when it's a first child and especially it seems to be my experience anyway I'm generalizing but the younger the parent uh, the less exposure they've sort of had to seeing how uh, how children are. So particularly with firstborn children, they don't know what they don't know and they've just experienced things as they are and think that's just how all children are. And it's very often your educator or the parent's educator is the first person to sort of say something's not not quite where it should be or we might want to start investigating this and it's it, like you said before it is a really difficult conversation to have um and I'm I'm really curious because we talked before we recorded about you having some strategies that educators can potentially use for that um and I just want to say that I want to circle back to a couple of points that you mentioned I didn't segue myself very well but let's, <laughs> let's talk about how um, you the strategies that you have and uh, please feel free to go right in depth with it because I think <laughs> it is really going to benefit from what you share yeah so this is um strategies for I guess if a child's not talking mm-hmm. yeah So, I mean, I can imagine as an educator, they need to, uh, they need children to be able to tell them about the basics, right? So, um, obviously, it it would vary from age to age. So, you know, if your child's between one to two or two to three or three to four, because you can have children that are three to four and still not talking, like, you know, and so. Is that normal? Like. No, that's not normal at all. No. Right, yes. Okay. Um, no, 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 that's not normal at all. <laughs> that's yeah, because um, I'm like, oh, okay, but but I'm I'm not in the speech world. So for me, yeah, you would have a far greater in-depth. I wouldn't think that that was quite normal either. No, but. no, no. Yeah. Um, so I mean, with children, when they start talking in terms of you know using single words, that can happen anywhere from if you've got a child who's on par, maybe about 10 months, mm-hmm. uh, and then it's around the one year of age for most children, maybe for a little bit later, it might be around the 18 months um, that they start saying single words, right? Yeah. Um, my daughter, she's 10 months of age and she is able to copy sounds and she's able to copy some words. They're not accurate, but she's just started waving and saying, hi, which is so cute but she's only 10 months yeah and so um there's a lot to there's a lot to think about when you're thinking about if like why is a child not talking or why um why what's happening at home or what like why why is this happening essentially and I guess just generally Obviously, you need to make sure that your child is in a stimulating environment. So, I mean, in daycare and, and preschools and settings, it's very stimulating. Yeah. But what I've found with educators is sometimes then they can give, um, in trying to be stimulating, they can um, be saying too much for the child to process and take in. Yeah. So my advice to educators is if a child is not talking, is to take it right back and make it really simple, quality-filled interactions rather than quantity. So what I mean by that is if your child is not talking at all, um, they might make sounds. Say they might be like, oh, brum, brum. Does this little child do brum, brum or like any any noise at all? Okay, so I'm going to preface this. Uh, Before we recorded, I did talk to Emily about a little fellow that's within our service who's two, isn't talking, um, and we understand that uh, one of the parents was a late speaker as well, Um, and I think that a lot of hopes are being rested upon the fact that one of the adults was a late speaker, and they're hoping that this will be the same for this little guy. However, the two educators that share care with him are a little bit concerned that He's not even babbling, this little child's not even babbling. babbling. Okay. Um, will very occasionally grunt and that's it. Grunt, okay, yeah. okay. 
Yeah. So what I would be doing. Yeah. (laughs) I got a little bit ahead of myself. Um, So what I'd be doing is I would be taking it back and doing sort of more singular sounds with him. So instead of, for example, if you're giving an instruction or doing an activity and you're saying, put the ball in or pick up the ball, like something like that, pick up the ball, it seems very simple. It's too much for a child who's not even speaking. So you need to dial it right back. Even if you just said pick, that's even too hard, even that, if all he's doing is grunting. So I would take it back even one step further and I would be saying, Now, you can't see me in the camera, but what I actually also do is I use finger movements. Now, if your educators are interested, there is um, what we call cued articulation. Now, cued articulation, you can look it up on YouTube and you can look it up online. It was um, developed in the 1990s by a lady called Jane Passy. Essentially, what it is, is it's using your hands and putting your hands up to your mouth and doing a gesture. And that gesture represents what's happening with your teeth, tongue, your lips when you produce a single sound. So when I'm doing pep, I would um, put my two fingers together to show how my lips are going together. Oh. As if you were and, picking up something. It's like that. Yeah. Pizza, a, a, you may yeah. be making a, a C to a closed C. Yeah. Depending which hand you're holding. Yeah, your index finger and your thumb putting it together like your lips going together and then opening them up. Um, And so what you're doing is you're trying to give the child as much prompting and cueing as possible. So we've dialed it right back and we've given a single sound. We're now adding our hand in and an action and where we can just say, and then we can attach it to a word like pick or push, you know, like if you're pushing a toy or something like that, or put, if you're putting something in, like they're quite common words. And what the whole purpose of that is, is because you're dialing it right back to give your child an opportunity to copy you. Because at the moment, the child is probably hearing so much around them and going like that's just going over their head. It's too complex. So we need to make it as simple as possible for our child to give them every opportunity to copy. And And developmentally, children will gesture before they talk. Yeah. So with my daughter, she started waving before yeah. she said hi. Yeah. And so that's a natural developmental progression. So by you putting any type of sign or in this case, um, a, a sign for cute articulation in, he might actually copy the sign and not the sound. Right. And you're giving him more opportunities to try and copy you. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, educators I know that they probably some are familiar with keyword sign are you familiar with keyword sign a little bit a little bit yeah yeah so it just depends I know different educators um, have different experience with that but um, it's the same thing with keyword sign I would highly recommend that for educators as well and I do talk about this we haven't mentioned this before but I do have a new course coming out for educators and I do go through and talk about um, cute articulation and keyword sign in my courses and how you can use them um, in your daily routines and activities. But key, the whole point of using keyword sign or cute articulation is not so that the child will sign, but it's actually to get the child to speak. Yeah. It's just that one step of, of breaking it down. If they can't speak, they might use the gesture. Yeah. And when we're talking about gestures, one gesture so, you know, um, if, he was to, if he was to put his fingers together or do any sort of action with his hands, that is actually classified as um, a sound or a word. Right. So um, for most, most educators are familiar with the finish sign, like you shake your, your um, what is that? What do you call that? Your, Thumbs your up big and then you thumb. shake. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, most educators are familiar with that. If your child was to actually look at you and do that sign without saying the word, that is fantastic because that is progression to them speaking and that's what we look at and we go, okay, that's inventory of one word that they have understanding for and they've expressed themselves. They haven't verbally said it, but they've showed you what they mean intentionally. Yeah. So, um, So it's really with him taking it right back, highlighting single sounds. So even if a common one is shh, you know, but instead of just saying shh with 
without using any hand gestures. Yeah. It's putting your finger up in a, you could do it in a natural one, which you probably do. Yeah. Or with acute articulation, it's you bring your thumb up and your index finger and put it near your mouth to show how the air is coming out of your mouth. You can go, shh. Oh. You can then pick up his hand because he's, you know, often parent people feel a bit helpless because they might go, shh, or, and the child doesn't do anything and they go, well, I didn't do anything. Yeah. But the beauty of signs is that you can then pick up his hand and do the action for him and show him, yeah. I just did that with your with my hand. Now you copy with your hand. Yeah. And that's that is essentially how children learn to talk is by copying. Yeah. So you want to teach them that you are expecting him to copy you. And if yeah. copying is too hard for a word, I'm going to make it even simpler for you. Yeah, okay. That's really interesting because I'm very much into the building blocks and not skipping steps. So for some children, and like I myself, um, in attentive ADHD, and I went to 13 different schools. So I missed a lot of building blocks. And one of those areas that I've always struggled with, or I thought I did, was mathematics. And that's because I didn't get the basic level. And same with my grammar. So people that watch the the um, social media things that I post, you'll always be able to tell because I make big boo-boos in there and I don't even pick it up because my brain's working way faster than my fingers are and then I'm posting and I'm moving on to the next thing. But that foundation, it's like the old adage of the iceberg in, in the water. You can see the top quarter but then there's three quarters that sit underneath. And if we miss mm. those three quarters or even parts of that three quarters underneath, we might look okay on the surface, but we've got holes through all of these things which are going to lead to problems down the track or currently. So I really like that idea of um, taking it back to basics, like super basics, and you're almost going to foundation level really of language and literacy there because those things will come forward and giving the children the cue because if they've got that far to two and they're not talking there's a big gap there that we need to retrace our steps and go back to and relay those foundational steps so I think they are Fabulous. So I've made notes of the cute articulation. So I'll put those links to that into the show yeah. notes so educators yeah. can jump on. Um, yeah. So yeah. they're fantastic resources and they're very easy to implement. It doesn't require any extra work. Yeah. Educators are already busy. It's just adding it to your normal routines. Yeah. And I think mm. it's helpful because you could then start doing those things with the children. Yep. And I, I went to a Maggie Dent workshop on Saturday and she talked about quietening a room down by just putting her hand up and then waiting for everybody else to notice that she'd put her hand up and do the same. You could do the same thing with the children. Shh. Mm -hmm. Simple yeah. thing means you don't have to raise your voice too, which is yeah. always nice. <laughs> so, and it's very engaging as well for the other children, even yeah. if you've got the one child with issues, but the other children will love it. They'll pick it up and they'll start doing their hands and it's a way to bring attention to a group setting as well. Yeah, and it can lead on to, like you say, the keyword signing and all those sorts of things which are valuable life skills that we could learn and should really learn and use out in the community too because there is deaf society and being able to communicate with people is such a wonderful uh, thing to be able to share. Uh, and that communication is key. Like we all, we're, we're inherently use communication to connect with people. And if we're mm. missing that, there's, it could be quite lonely, I would imagine. And 100%. Um, that's why with children, like communication, like I just loved how you said with your iceberg, right? Because with your iceberg, parents often think communication like they just, they just think the level of communication and that's the top level. But underneath communication, what it means is if a child can communicate, they can develop their self-esteem. Yeah. They develop confidence. They actually develop a sense of belonging. Yeah. And that is innately what is every person's desire and what everyone's made up, like what makes a person complete. And if, if, a, if a child can't communicate, 
that's that that's you know the tip of the iceberg the top of it but underneath under the surface they start going well what's wrong with me particularly as they get older what's wrong with me people can't understand me I don't fit in there and they don't have confidence and that is that if you do have that it leads to whole adults and whole people and so if you don't have those things that's it just it compounds and and unfortunately there's so many statistics about um you know as as children get older these things impact them a lot in literacy um you know a lot of people that are referred for behavioral difficulties they always have poor language skills yeah you know and so it's so important that we see below the iceberg you see why yeah. communication is so important which is exactly what you're saying yeah i listened to a podcast yesterday um and they were talking about it was an american podcast and they were talking about the amount of American adults that don't have the literacy skills to even read at a basic level so they can't read to their children. When you can't mm. read to your children and you don't read to your children, it has long-term impacts and effects. And they actually went on to look at the financial cost to America and it's in the trillions of dollars mm. every year that poor and low literacy levels are costing the country. I would imagine we are on a similar sort of plane here. But to, like, not being able to read is one thing. If you can talk, you can get, like, I can I can tell stories about anything and, get, and, and talk my way into and out of situations. It's very handy when I was a teenager. Um, but... Uh, if you don't have that ability to be able to verbally communicate, you you are cutting yourself off or you are being cut off from the vast population and that's, that really limits your life chances of having a, a great life or having even mm. a life that can be comfortable, you, you know. So if you can't yeah. talk and you can't yeah. read, like how do you communicate with people what are your life experiences going to be so it's really mm. important that we get the help so how would an educator go about raising this topic with a family yeah so it, i understand um that it can sometimes be a bit of a daunting thing for educators particularly um educators that have only just come into the industry um, you know, sometimes you've got educators with 20 years experience and they build that over time. However, really, um, these days, educators need to be able to be confident and equipped talking to parents from the get-go, from the moment that they're with children on the floor. So what I like to do, do you mind if I just run you through a little bit of a, um, a script Please. that I would I would Please. do with parents? Because we have the same thing. Like, you know, I was a speech therapist. I go, I go out socially and parents go, what do you think about this child? What do you think about this? You know, I sort of am in the same situations as well. And what I would encourage educators to do is I would first have a check-in question with the parent. So, you know, how do you feel, Johnny, for example, is going overall? Um, you know, just see where the parents' heads are at. I don't offer any information until I get a feel for where the parents are at. Great um, I will then always provide positives first. And so for some children... The positives can be really big, you know. So Johnny had a sleep at nap time today and he participated in group time. Or sometimes the positives are really little. So um, he ate two bites of his sandwich today, you know, or, or he sat for a minute during the story time or he was able to pick up the scissors, you know, just something very little. Yep. Um, I would then always ask for the parents' input. So I would say, do you have any concerns? You could make it general. Do you have any concerns or do you have any concerns about communication? You know, you could put, you could ask a few different areas and then the parents might say no. And you say, oh, okay. And I would just validate whatever they say or validate their response because that you, the point of this is to get them on board and to develop a bit of a rapport with them. Uh -huh. Um then I would, make, depending on the parents, so if they were like really closed, I'd be like, okay, no worries. I'm just going to keep watching Johnny and I'll let you know how he's going and I would leave the conversation there. I would yeah. not introduce anything because you're just getting a feel for where the parents are. 
if your parent, when you ask for the input, said, oh, you know, why? What, you know, what are you thinking? Oh, I am a little bit concerned. Not sure. You know, like you have very whole spectrum of answers from parents. Yeah. I, the main thing with educators is you need to comment on something you have witnessed. So a physical observation. So yeah. we're not, we're just basically stating a fact. We're not inferring anything yet. We're not bringing milestones yet. You could just say something like, Johnny, um, it was really good today. Johnny sat for a minute. However, he couldn't sit for the full five minutes or whatever it is. So it's a very factual observation. Johnny needed help telling his news today. Johnny needed extra time. Um, or Johnny couldn't put the beads on the um, pipe cleaner, you know, or, or something like that. And so I would make a really specific observation and then I would say, have you ever noticed this with him or does this happen at home with you? And if the, depending on what the parent says, I would be like, okay, just think about this at home this weekend and let me know if you notice this or let me know if you have any thoughts. End of discussion, yeah. end of conversation. We've yeah. not recommended anything yet. It's just laying the groundwork, laying the thoughts. This, this way is also like protecting the educator as well. Because yeah. you know, we don't want the educator <laughs> to be feeling victimized or a parent turning around and lashing out at them. And, and often when you have to bring up something with a parent, the parent is feeling quite vulnerable. Sometimes they feel personally attacked, like they've not been a good enough parent. It brings up all their issues. Yeah. So you've got to protect as much as you're looking after protecting the child because you're bringing up something about them. You've got to protect yourself as well, as much as you can have a little bit of wisdom in, in talking to the parents. Later on, so it might be a week later, a day later, like whatever, whenever is appropriate, I'd then follow up again. And I'd say, I just want to follow up with Johnny. Have you noticed anything from our previous conversation? Yeah. Um, Johnny, I'd bring up another positive. Johnny did really well at this today. Again, factual. He said hello to me today. He sat at the table. Okay, so do you have any concerns about his communication or about what we spoke about? No, yes. And then that's when that I would say, okay, so I've noticed again, comment on a fact. Yeah. So this happened again. And I'm and just say to them, so so for example, if we're talking about this little boy who's two and not speaking. Yeah. So I would say, so I know that um, according to speech therapists or speech pathologists, that children need to be putting two words together at two. Yeah. And that's a milestone. So that can be a little bit hard for the parents to hear, but you've already had the initial conversation with them. You may need to sort of, depending on the parent, you might need to be firmer or less firm, you know, like it's using your guidance there. Yeah. And with the, with the milestone, you don't need to give them heaps. It's just give them one milestone or a red flag. And um, again, I keep alluding to my new course that's coming up, but with my yeah. new course, I give a, a milestone document with that okay. of what's a red flag for each age between one to um, six and what's expected for each age. And it's a, like a checklist so educators can complete. Yeah. Um, sometimes as well, I just encourage an educator to just have like a, ch um, a checklist. Like, so even at my clinic website, speakaboutspeech.com, we have milestones under each age. So you could even say like, um, I want you to have a look at this website. It's got everything that Johnny should be doing for a two-year-old. And yeah. like, just let me see here if anything stands out to you that he's not doing. Yeah. And that again, you're, you're saying like giving them information, trying to educate them. Cause that's what we want to do. We want to educate parents. Yeah. And then after that, you might then go, okay, like I'll follow up with you again later. It's a lengthy process, but the goal mm. is that we get the parent on board. If the parent's a little bit more open, then you can give a recommendation. And so the first recommendation I would be giving is I would say, or like, yeah, recommendation I'll be saying, so I think what I can do to help him is to do a little bit more specific or targeted work yeah. um, in the sessions. However, the professional that would help with this, that's more qualified is a speech therapist. So you're sort of saying, I will help. Yep. And there's more you can do because then that's just going to help them feel more comfortable with you and feel like you're more on board. Yep. And then I sort of asked two questions because you don't know where parents are. At, so I'd say, have you heard of a speech therapist before? Do you know about speech therapists? How do you feel about them? Or would you be, would you feel comfortable contacting a speech therapist to see if they can help him? Yeah. And so 
again, if the parent's like, no, 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 go, that's fine. And so I think educators have to remember that at the end of the day, it's the parents or the caregiver's responsibility to take your recommendations on board. And if they don't, you're not a failure. Yeah. And you have to be like, okay, I can't control the situation. I can't force them to go to a speech therapist. I will just keep commenting and having these conversations of factual things that I have observed. But I can only do what I can do to improve the situation. And so I think then that's just that's just a side tip because often you get to that point of making the recommendation. And if a parent turns around and says no, it can be really crushing. Yeah. And you can also feel really frustrated because you're like, well, I have to deal with this behavior, you know, or ramifications on this every day. They really need the help. Yeah. Um, so it's just, it's just important to remember that if they don't or if it takes some time, you haven't failed. But hopefully, hopefully then they would um, be like, okay, and they'd have the, the trust with you. I think at the end of the day, it's about trust. Yeah. And, you, and the more that you know about their child, I think they'll receive it better. Yeah, so most definitely. The more you tell them. And, and being proactive yourself, like saying, well, these are the things that I'm already doing uh, yeah. to assist your child because quite often if the child comes home and starts going parents yep. not going to have any clue whatsoever what they're doing and yep. they're going to be like what are you doing <laughs> did you learn yep. that Indy? and not knowing the yep. purpose behind it so I think anytime an educator does something uh, and if you're sharing it in that positive manner like oh these are the things that I'm already doing to help your child mm. these are the things that a speech therapist or pathologist could help you with too but you've already introduced the fact that you're already doing something to help the child. So they're going to look silly if they tell you not to do that mm-hmm. because, it, it, yeah, they'll look silly and I don't think anybody would. So then you've already inferred permission to be already doing that. It's a little yeah. bit of a backdoor way of, of um, yeah. you know, being able to do things with children. But if you make that a part of your program that you do for everybody, then it's going to benefit that particular child too. Um, I've had it in the past where I have suggested that somebody go and see a, um, a paediatrician uh, to get a possible diagnosis because I've picked up what I perceive to be red flags only for them to get there and like wait months, finally get there, then the paediatrician sees the child one-on-one for 15 minutes and has goes, oh, it's all developmentally fine. And then they come back to me and say, see, he's fine. And I go, mm. oh, he's mm-hmm. not being observed with his peers and the issues are with his communication with peers or others or, you know, whatever the problem is, is that's happening. So mm. I find that can be quite frustrating and then educators can often be like well I'm not going to recommend that anymore because I end up looking silly even though I'm working with this child two three four five days a week and this behavior or these patterns are not really conducive to a child who's developmentally where they should be Um, yeah so can I give you a tip yes please With (laughs) with with those um, I would be saying for um, obviously getting the parents' consent is to take a couple of videos of when things are actually happening. So um, the so like I tell this to parents if because often children are having huge behavioural difficulties, but when they go out in public, they're perfect and they come home and there's a lot of issues. So I tell the parents you take videos, take a thirty second video, three different occasions, take that to the pediatrician and say, this child's going to be perfect right in front of you now, but I want to show you what I'm dealing with at home. And so in the childcare setting or the family daycare setting, if you say to the parents, look, are you happy for me to send you like to film 30 second videos so that you can go and show professionals. And I mean, those videos would be beneficial for anyone, the OT, um, whoever they need to see, you know, externally as well. And then, um, that might also help the parents um, be on board. Like, I, I guess, say, if you're in a group situation, you could just say, oh, you know, we did story time today and it's just filming. And so the parent will probably watch and be like, well, my child's not on the mat. Why is my child not on the mat? The other three kids are on the mat. If you've got four, why are they not on the mat? And you can say, oh, that's what I have observed, you know? So getting that 
video um, yeah. is what you need to take to a pediatrician. Yeah. And they'll watch it and then they'll see and then they have to act on that. Yeah, 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 because uh, there is the old, and it's starting to change, but there is the old, oh, you're just a daycare mum. A lot of people really undervalue the education that family daycare educators have and also the skill set that we bring and that these environments are less stimulating than or not overstimulating like a long daycare setting can be. And I'm not saying all are, but my experience, you know, and I was in there for years, was that when I came into family daycare, it was like, oh, my nervous system detuned immensely. So I think when educators are noticing things within a family daycare environment too, it's even more pronounced than what Absolutely. it do you know what I'm trying to say like in a long daycare setting it would be even more and these things would show up probably more yeah. and sooner than what they do in a family daycare setting so when an educator notices something within Absolutely. the NPC setting really it should be taken very seriously because we do have lower stimulating environments in terms of visual noise auditory noise you know all those sorts of things that can set these kinds of behaviors and patterns off so um, I, I wanted to circle back. You mentioned before uh, feeding issues and fussy eaters. That's a huge, huge topic that we could probably do a podcast just on that <laughs> because I know there's there's lots and, and I see it and it just really hurts my heart. These children that get these pouches right up until they're three mm. years old, and it's, mm. it, it's they're not getting that development of jaw muscles mm. and using their tongues properly. And I just see the difference in when I had my children 22 years ago to now the food that's available too. So much of it is soft and bland and all these sorts of things, full of sugar and sodium and all these sorts of things. So mm. from a speech pathologist perspective, can you talk a little bit on that? Sure. <laughs> um, I mean, basically when we're doing feeding, so I comment, I said before that I my first um, or the earliest I've ever seen a child is the day that they're born. Mm. And so children aren't speaking then. It's all about feeding. Mm. And so the foundations, like we're talking about foundations, the foundations of being able, being able to communicate and say sounds or words comes from your muscles and so your tongue muscles your cheek muscles your teeth how you can move them together your jaw your lips it all works together and that actually breastfeeding or bottle um, feeding that is where the, that strength is developed yeah. um, even the way that they swallow and it's it's actually a very complex process swallowing like it's a lot of like a lot of things when you think about it there's a lot of little details and things that go into such an automatic task for us but even the fact of being able to breathe and and being swallowing like babies have that um special ability where they can breathe and swallow at the same time when they're breastfeeding but uh, they they lose that reflex as they get older um and so all like that from that initial point of feeding from a, a breast feeding or a milk and then moving up into solids, that is all working towards getting your child to talk yeah. and getting your child to be able to um, communicate verbally. So it's obviously foundational. Yeah. <laughs> it's foundational. And so when, um, like, there's no difference between the, the, the bottle and the breast in terms of the effect, the um, benefits for the, for the oral, um, what am I saying, oral motor development. Yeah. However, when they're progressing and they're, on solids like there's a reason why solids have a bit of a progression to them and that's um, all helping our child develop their muscles and it's also about coordination and sequencing of the muscles and it's the brain processing how do I sequence what's the first step in this how do I activate these muscles which are all important for communication Mm -hmm. and um, children often run into well children can run into a lot of like we said, fussy eating behavior or behaviors um, anywhere from about two or three onwards. Some of it is normal. Some of it is not. And so, um, for example, my eldest daughter, she's three. 
she had a period when she was um, 18 months and onwards where she'd eat anything. And now I'm flat out getting her to eat anything more than a sausage and like um, a chicken schnitzel. That in itself, I know that she can eat, but it's a more behavioral issue. And it's more, it's just like asserting my, um, you know, she wants to assert herself and her decision-making and things like that. However, you do have the flip side though with some children where they are actually have sensory issues and they can be, um, it can be hard for them to cope with different textures and things. So, you know, you've got, um, you can have obviously purees and lumps and then full food and chewy food and meat and things like muesli bars, apples. Across that, it's such a broad spectrum. Children can have lots of different sensitivities. Mm-hmm. Generally, a child won't have sensitivities unless there's underlying things going on as well. Mm-hmm. So there might be an additional diagnosis happening or there might be um, a medical condition. So often I've seen children, they've had chronic reflux Mm-hmm. And their throat is just so sensitive and it becomes a bit of a trigger for them. And um, they often then don't, they often don't like to say sounds in the back of their throat, like a k or a g sound, because it's all just so sensitive, the back of the throat. And with feeding therapy over time, that's our whole point is to desensitize children and get them to be eating properly and being open to foods. Yeah. Um, but it is, it is a very big uh, issue I find these days um, with children, probably particularly like you said, with pouches and lots of um, convenient options for parents yeah. available as well. Not to say that that's the cause, or if you're doing that with your child, they're going to have any issues. Yeah. But it's just a lot more convenient these days, isn't it? Oh, definitely. And I, I feel for parents because they're often both working five days a week and mm-hmm. you know all the things. But I often look back at how I raised my children and I was I was you know able to we sacrificed buying a house so that I could stay home with my kids our kids um but also in saying that like we we made those sacrifices but I think even when I was working and I did go to work and Brian was away mining and all those sorts of things so you know single parenting for quite a bit of their childhood as well um it was always that focus on the hard work now pays off later and it's it's something that you know I've I've just stuck with and I I don't know where I learned all of these things but to me it was just easy to you know we were making steamed veggies with our our dinner so I just steamed the kids a little bit longer and mashed it up and I did you know you stop mashing everything so it's puree so then you're introducing Mm. those lumps and textures and different flavors Mm. Things like that. I'll never forget the time Yolanda first had a chicken bone. It was disgusting because she chewed the knobbly, grisly bit off the <laughs> drumstick and sat there and crunched it up. And we were like, "What? That is so gross!" She they loved it. love it, don't they? They love yes. it. <laughs> yes, she loved it. I mean, my kids were vegetarian until they had molar teeth because yeah. I, right or wrong, had the idea that I, if they couldn't chew it up themselves their body probably wasn't quite ready to digest that so right or wrong I don't know that's just what I did and yeah she did have you know bones and they gnawed on bones and stuff like that especially in their teething (laughs) (laughs) you wouldn't like the bone in there when you're teething um yeah so I, I I also notice now too the tongue ties seem to be a lot more prevalent or is it just that we're better at diagnosing it now we're better at diagnosing it now. It's a lot more awareness about an education. Yeah, because yeah, I'd never heard of tongue ties until maybe 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. There's a, I think that's just in society in general. There's a lot more knowledge about things and education than what there was yeah. many years ago. Yeah, well, look at ADHD. I didn't work yeah. out ADHD until a year ago, two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. I look back and I think, oh, there was many kids, you know, that we labelled you know, when we were a kid, like, oh, they're, they're, they're a bit different. And I look back in the eye and think, oh, they probably had language difficulties or they had autism and that just wasn't heard of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's so fascinating. I find it really, really interesting that this gamut of different abilities, I'm going to say, and diversity is makes the world so incredible what we want to do is we want to be aware of the things that can be worked with 
and and the things that are just the way the person is and it's finding that middle ground and that's where obviously speech pathologists and therapists come in because and OTs and all those sorts of things because you're you've niched down into that particular area and the expertise that you have there is able to to get through and and work out what is needing to be worked on and what is just the way that person is and I, I love the the idea and the, how you've brought the literacy into it because I used oral stories to teach the children that was the first building block of literacy for me because they're learning to remember sequences and when mm. they get a story in sequence that's one of the first things for literacy is that sequencing and I think it's um, a really great way to be role modeling correct speech to uh, because when I was educating with the children I wasn't bogan speaking at all <laughs> I spoke very clearly and concisely with the children too because I'm aware of that role modeling um, that can be helpful for children too um, so Absolutely. you've mentioned your course a couple of times do you want to tell us a bit more about your course and how people can jump onto that of course I'm so excited about it like we've been saying there's um I think there's a lot of need and there's a, a gap here so that's what my course is sort of that's where it comes under so um essentially this course um, the course I've created is called language unlocked it's for I know educators are very busy so it's for busy educators but it's for educators who want to have an impact in that busyness and it's I've really intentionally designed it so that's not going to add to the workload. It's more designed. Um, I go through and I teach you specific language strategies and it's designed to come and partner with you and for you to be able to implement in your daily activities and routines to make your dialogues, interactions full, like even more full, I should say, because they're already full, even more full of quality interactions. Yep. And so I guess um, I created this course because um, obviously I've been a speechy and then I was a mum and I was sitting in mum's groups and I was starting not to tell people that I was a speech therapist because I just was like, there's no point telling anyone because they can't get the help. They just yeah. can't get the help. And I, <laughs> I was like, there's something seriously wrong with that. I don't want to tell people what I do. Yeah. But I, I had parent, oh, mum after mum, like crying to me saying, like, I can't get the help for my child. They've got a severe disability. What am I supposed to do? And I was just like, I don't know. I'm sitting here with all the expertise. I can help you, but I physically can't. Like in terms of yeah. in our speech therapy clinic, we can only see a certain number of children each day. Like what am I supposed to do? Yeah. And it was um, interesting because I've been working, obviously, with alongside educators for 15 years. and I. I would then um, work with our local educators here in the Hawkesbury and I would say to them, okay, so this is what you need to do with this child. This is what I'm working on. This is how you can improve their language skills. We always connect with our educators every time we see a child mm -hmm. um, for speech therapy. And I just thought, well, hang on. Like, why can't we work with educators? Why can't speech therapists be like, why can't I do this? with all educators you know why yeah. am I just doing it with these with like one or two local ones and then so I actually um it was by fluke it came into my inbox an article of a research study conducted um just recently last at the end of last year and it was saying that um Australian parents actually listen to the educator for and get advice from the educator about their child and would trust the educator over a GP and oh. over a speech pathologist and I was like hang on hang on like this is this is a big gap um and then I I just did a little bit more digging and I found that like for um there's a lot of statistics that they've collected through surveys and data and for um children that are four to five um 95% of, or 85% of Australian children that are fortified are enrolled in childcare, some sort of service, right? Yeah. And not from those children, 95% of them spend over 15 hours a week in care. So that's like a lot of time in a child's life. Yep. And I thought the educators, like I already knew that they had such a vital impact, 
But I thought they are really so critical. They are the critical key in children's development. And yep. then this article was talking about um, how educators are equipped to, to um, promote oral language development with children and, and emergent literacy. And it, the, basically the, the study concluded that educators weren't happy with their level of training, pre-training in these yep. areas of language and literacy. And they then felt not confident talking to parents and educators struggle when there was a breakdown. So they would model correct words. They would speak clearly. Um, but then when there was a breakdown, they were just like, that's the end of our skills. We don't yeah. know what else to do. We can yeah. draw on a few things, but we're not sure if that's right. We're just going to try a few things or try different things, you know, but we're not sure. And so it affected their confidence. But Australian parents really rely on educators. So it was just this cycle. Yeah. So that's where this course has come from because I've, I believe that we need to do something differently. We need to work differently in the future and we need to have a different collaborative relationship to what we've had before between speech therapists and educators. And yep. so when I'm talking about educators, that's in any sort of setting, whether you're in your, your long daycare, your family daycare, your preschool setting, and or even if you're in um, ECT and teaching kindy, you know, like it's sort of that, that age. But that's what I've created. I've created a program which basically is my speech therapy expertise and training educators in a very simple way. I'm all about the simple, not yep. about making things complicated or complex, but it's making it so that educators can implement these strategies to boost language development and to boost language um, and communication development with children. And um, it's my course is um, an eight mod or an eight lesson course. It covers, um, like I said, it covers, covers like normal development, milestones. I give you how to talk to parents and all that sort of pre-work as well. And then I go into how I actually would do therapy to improve language for a child and what strategies I would use. And I um, talk about, um, I have what I call a preschool language hierarchy, and it's basically all goals, language goals, that children need to hit every six months to keep them on track for their age. And so what I've done is um, I've been rolling out the course with other educators. They've said that that tool alone is so powerful because it's something that they know they can incorporate into their curriculum and their teaching yep. in the everyday and know that they're doing the right thing for the child at the right age. And on the flip side, it also works to accelerate children. If you've got children who are moving miles and miles ahead, educators are like what's the next step what can we do to to accelerate them and they this um, hierarchy shows you okay what are the next level of goals that you can work on with your child but it's but in saying this it's incorporating it all into the everyday into your activities to make it easy um but i'm really into quality like making quality and meaningful interactions so um yeah my goal my my goal is that educators feel more empowered they feel more confident they feel equipped to um, improve language development which is um, the course sort of aligns with um, the curriculum and the the, um, national standards so it's a part of what you do but it's just um, hopefully going to create a bit like be more confidence with educators and just help them with intentional teaching amazing Um, because so much of what you said there was just pure gold because it is that you know, it takes months for children to get in and get appointments or parents to get appointments for their children if the parent is even going to go down that route and they don't have to. Um, so it's very um, fortuitous that educators can actually access this and just make it part of their program, which benefits all of the children at the same time as the children that really desperately need it, which means that educators can go, okay, well, I can identify something. I'm not qualified, but I can identify this. I can see it and I have the tools at hand to be able to hopefully get them over this little hurdle or this hump and have a positive beneficial impact on that child for the rest of their life. And yeah, we're undervalued in what we do, but I actually find that that um, information that you shared that educators will, uh, parents will listen to their educators more than what they will actually listen to us is you know, like heartwarming. Yay, we're having a positive yeah. impact and 
parents, the people that matter secondary to the children, uh, are actually recognising and acknowledging us, which is great. Yeah, it's fantastic. And it's it's just, um, I guess, you develop the trust with them because they yeah. you know their child inside and out. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Hi, friend. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you got a lot out of today's episode. When we work on our own, we can sometimes be in a silo. So having new perspectives and different ways of looking at things is vitally important for the growth of our individual selves and our professional selves as well. We love feedback, so if you felt compelled to share what you thought of today's podcast, we would love to read your thoughts. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcast. That helps our podcast to get out to the wider community. And the more that hear what we have to share, we think the better it is. Thanks so much, friend. We'll see you next time. Till then, big love.